This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily, your government-mandated single piece of mental exercise for the day. I'm Ros Taylor, and if you were able to join our Bunker versus Romaniacs live stream last week, thanks for watching and asking questions. It was really quite fun. It was very weird and quite fun. You can watch the live stream again and get an audio version via the Romaniacs Patreon site. Just search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. My guest today is a political columnist and interviewer for The Guardian, a former political correspondent and political editor for The Daily Mail and The Observer and a regular on TV and radio. In 2012, she wrote the book Half a Wife, The Working Family's Guide to Getting a Life Back, which suddenly sounds relevant in a whole different way. It's Gabby Hinsliff. Hello, Gabby. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So you made work-life balance your specialist subject in your freelance career for a while. Did you ever imagine people would be trying to balance those same things in the same small space? Never in my wildest dreams or possibly nightmares, that should be, actually. I think what a lot of people are finding quite tough about this is it's not even just about balancing work and family anymore. A lot of us are trying to sort of do the day job, but in weird circumstances, while simultaneously teaching the children, which for most of us is a whole new job that we haven't been trained to do and don't know how to do, at the same time as sort of entertaining the children and being a parent and worrying about, in your spare time, about whether your elderly mother's getting a supermarket delivery slot and meanwhile living 24-7 on top of each other. So it's sort of work-life balance on steroids, um, except with a newly kind of physical dimension. Because I think if you're a working parent, you're probably used to feeling occasionally guilty and torn while you're in the office, worrying about what's going on at home. But now sort of your home is simultaneously your office and your children aren't sort of some distant concept. They are literally right there in your face demanding that you do something for them while you're trying to trying to type. I mean, I was just watching Sky this morning and Annalisa Dodds, the new uh, Shadow Chancellor, was uh, broadcasting to the nation about her new priorities as Shadow Chancellor when a small Dodds entered the room and kind of <laughs> appeared live on camera. And just, we're all getting used to that now, seeing your colleagues, children and dogs and random people wandering past while you're uh, trying to video conference them. Yes, I had my son walk into a video conference with my quite distinguished colleague at the LSE the other day, and I was initially horrified. And then I realised, no, actually, that's okay. I can live with that. But yes, you're right. Absolutely. I really like seeing other people's kids actually wandering, wandering into frame. It's rather nice. Although a friend was telling me a story the other day of a, a very high-level video conference that ended abruptly when somebody's four-year-old ran through brandishing scissors. And it was like, okay, this has to stop now. But yeah. <laughs> So you, you've been calling and other people have been calling for flexibility in, in working for a long time. And now we all have to be incredible, incredibly flexible. 
do you think business is managed to adapt fairly fast or are we are we are we still struggling with this i mean it's always been women you generally who've been asking for this flexibility and does that does that mean that it was filed under women's stuff and not for serious business people, i.e. men? How how is it how is it feeling for men, do you think, now who are suddenly for the first time forced to try and work from home and look after kids at the same time? I think it's true that for a very long time it, it was a, a women's thing and as a result it wasn't it wasn't taken seriously or it, it, it damaged your career to ask for it. You know, it was felt to imply that you weren't really committed if you wanted to work part time or if you wanted to work a day or two from home or whatever, or if you wanted, you know, staggered um start and finish times that was taken as proof that you weren't committed I think that was changing has been changing it was changing even when I wrote the book in 2012 and I did interview quite a lot of men who worked flexibly or wanted to work flexibly I think the desire has always been there I think what this um, crisis changes in a way is that it's no longer a sort of request it's no longer a sort of perk that you give the employee you'll graciously allow them to work from home it's become essential to the functioning of the business and everybody's doing it you know from the CE down the prime minister has been working remotely from his flat in number 11 this week you know if, if you can prime minister at a, from home then you can probably you know what you can probably be a middle manager in sales from home for a bit and although everyone's finding it difficult and you know, there's lots of wrangles about tech and making it work and and you know how you operate at this distance we're all having a crash course in how to do it and in a sense the fact that some of us have been doing this for a while is a saving grace i mean i think if you were trying to do this 20 years ago you just it would be physically impossible we now have the platforms and the networks and that i mean i said in the book that wi-fi would have been as liberating as the pill for many women you know the idea that you can do your work from home remotely over the internet is revolutionary you know to people who've been around a bit longer and i think that's really been our saving grace in this crisis it'll be interesting to see after this it'd be very hard for employers to say no you can't possibly work from home because we've all kind of done it you know we're not all obviously there are a lot of people whose jobs still require very much require their presence but you know in many office jobs it turns out can be moved out of the office if they have to and it's interesting actually i i don't know if lockdown would even be thinkable uh, without the internet and lockdown itself i mean when you think about how much it, it enables and how very 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 much more difficult it would be without it and actually social media you know much maligned in in normal times but i think in terms of keeping people feeling connected and not you know very lonely and very cut off um from the world around them you know that's been really crucial yeah Michael Gove said couples who were thinking of moving in together could use this period as a test of their relationship, which seems quite quite harsh, I thought. Good luck to you <laughs> doing that. Yeah. I, I often think, you know, think of those poor couples. But what about what about people in established relationships who are, who are now spending more time together than ever before? I mean, everyone tries to be very cheerful on social media or some people try to be cheerful. But what do you think's going on behind the scenes? We heard that... In China, for example, there's been a bump in the divorce rate among couples recently in the uh, in the months in the few weeks or so since the lockdown there has been released. Do you think we'll have a similar trend here? Yeah, it's interesting whether that's a genuine rise in divorce or whether that's people who were going to get divorced during that period but couldn't. So there's a sort of bit of pent up demand afterwards. But I think anybody who's being honest about this knows this is a test of all relationships not just new ones it's a test of some very old ones too when you're all living on top of each other 24 7 at a time that's quite anxious you know it's not just the close proximity it's 
everyone's worried. You know, a lot of people have got financial worries or worries about whether their job is still going to be there for them after this, worries about elderly parents, about your health, you know, so it's a real pressure cooker environment. And, you know, over the last week, I think there's been there been a quarter rise in calls to the domestic violence helpline. So obviously, you know, for some couples, being trapped at home with an abusive partner must be your absolute worst nightmare. And I think for the rest of us who, you know, thankfully are in in functioning, but, but you know, ordinarily stressful relationships, I think it's a bit like a preview of being retired. You know, this is what it's going to be like when neither of you's got anything to do all day, sort of, sort of hang around and bicker. But um, I think <laughs> those of us who do get through this phase will do so, probably emerge stronger for it. I think what it is really showing up, actually, just judging by the um, amount of uh, female WhatsApps, WhatsApp groups I'm in, is it's definitely showing up who does it's really casting new light on who does what around the house you know if if one of you's doing all the homeschooling and all the sort of domestic stuff while still trying to do their job or if one of you is and the other one isn't really pulling their weight or if if one of you is you know insisting that their job is so much more important and therefore they have to commandeer you know vast amounts of space and time for it and can't possibly be interrupted while one of you sort of you know in the airing cupboard with a laptop hiding from the children that's you know that's really starting to show up shall we say some some existing fault lines within marriages and your book half a wife touched quite a lot on those power relationships and how to negotiate them do you do you have any advice now for how to get through them in this situation I think what I said in the book was if you need extra time, because that was the half a wife idea was, you know, everybody wishes who's working when they're both working full time thinks, oh God, what I really need is a wife to do all that stuff that, you know, I haven't got time to do. And actually you don't need a, you don't need a whole person at home full time necessarily, but you do need a bit more time just to fit in the domestic stuff and the kids stuff and the, you know, all the work that goes into running a house and a family. Um, and I said, you know, try and find that time between the two of you. So it doesn't have to be just one person whose career takes the hit when you have children. You know, could one of you work from home a few days a week or can one of you cut a bit of slack somewhere and both of you, you know, find that time together. And I think that really is true for now. The couples I see managing this best are the ones who are really, you know, careful and thoughtful about giving each other sort of time to work so it's you know I'll let you work for two hours while I look after the kids and you know you then we'll swap and everybody gets a chance to get some work done rather than one person's work being seen to take all the priority and the other person being up till midnight trying to finish it and I think these are really unusual circumstances and stressful circumstances and the more you can kind of help each other share the load the better. Yeah, I've certainly found that compartmentalising and swapping is working because I found that you just couldn't homeschool and work at the same time. It was impossible to develop any concentration at all. Um, so I had to sort of just say, right, I'm only going to homeschool you for two hours each day. And that's all you're going to get. Well, I don't I think, you know, I mean, to be honest, homeschooling is one to one. It's quite intensive. You may be, I mean, it, it, you may not be very good at it. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> but, you know, it's <laughs> very intensive time. Um, and I don't think you probably, it's not realistic to think you're going to do an entire school day's worth of that. You know, you just have to hope that in a couple of hours of one-to-one, you get across what you might hope to get across in six hours. And remember, everyone's in the same boat. I think there's a lot of putting unnecessary pressure on that, each other through this. I've heard that the 0.1% are paying for home tutors to live in and no doubt 
some staff to carry on doing their cleaning for them. Nice euphemism there. At the other extreme, there are people living in cramped flats with no kitchen table, no iPads to do the schoolwork on. And as ever, we don't hear much from these people because they don't have big Twitter followings and big voices in the media. Are we in danger of falling into the same trap we did over Brexit? Not understanding how much harder lockdown is when you're poor and you live in an area where maybe the parks have been shut. Are we lacking empathy for those people? I think the parks issue has really brought it to light, actually, because this this question of outside space and who can use it. Because if you, you know, have a house and a garden, I mean, I'm lucky. I live in the countryside. We've got open fields on our doorstep. You know, we've got plenty of choice about where we go and take our mandated daily exercise. But if you live in our, you know, in a one bedroom flat with no outside space, of course, going to the park is your absolute lifeline. And talk of, you know, shutting the parks because people aren't using them sensibly is terrifying. And I think, you know, you have to be able to bear in mind that people are getting through this crisis in very different ways, as you say, some in some in comfort, some in conditions that aren't, you know, perfect, aren't ideal at the best of times. And some people have a lot more, you know, the other big divide is between people who have savings, who, you know, it may be a tough time financially and professionally for the next few weeks but you know you you do have some savings to tide you through and about a third of um, Britons don't have any savings at all you know cannot afford to lose money and cannot afford even if they're furloughed you know and on 80 percent of their salaries well that's still sort of 20 percent is missing so I think and then you know another big divide between the employed who might at least have their jobs kept open for them and self-employed people whose jobs have disappeared overnight you know and are finding it difficult to access government help sometimes so you know there are a lot of divides emerging through this crisis and sometimes it's it's very tempting to say we're all in this together but some of us are in it a lot deeper than others really yeah and i think it's particularly difficult because journalists as ever in a crisis are busy engaged and not likely not as likely to lose their jobs ah, wait and see on that front but, media. Yeah. but we'll yeah but but you you're seeing a very you're seeing a, a very different type of person producing the news and i think that that can be quite dangerous in terms of trying to do, develop some empathy with people stuck in the situations you describe so do you think adolescents are going to cope better or worse than adults with this i feel incredibly sorry for them because they've had the sort of structure taken away of their exams which they may not have wanted but it was there and now they're stuck inside nearly all the time not allowed to meet up with their friends and now they only have social media to keep in touch should we be setting strict limits on that social media or is that this not the time to crack down? I think, you know, teens are essentially social creatures. Their friends are really important to them. For little children, you know, in some ways it's it's lovely having your parents home all day, even if they are mostly hunched over a laptop going, don't bother me till lunchtime. But, you know, they they quite like the idea of all the family being in it together. But But for teenagers who really just don't want to be in the house with their parents at the best of times, you know, and are now cut off physically from from seeing their friends, it's really hard. So I think, I mean, I think this now is not the time to get strict about screen time. We're all using screens much more than usual. You know, adults as well are using social media or or using Zoom or using House Party or using, we've invaded all the teenagers' apps, you know, probably migrate somewhere else now. But we're all using social media a lot to stay in touch with our friends. And I don't see why teenagers shouldn't do that too. I think whatever gets you through at this time is, is kind of worth doing. The only thing I would say is you don't police the time, but do keep an eye on what they're doing. Because this, I think, is a very vulnerable time for, you know, not everybody on social media is a benign actor 
Um, there have been warnings about potential for online abuse coming, you know, rising during this period because kids are on their phones a lot more. So it's, it's what they're doing, not, not how much of it they're doing. I think that's probably key right now. And as you say, the, the exam cancellation thing is very difficult. You know, we're, we're, initially you'd think, oh, probably loads of kids will be thrilled not to do their GCSEs. But actually, when they've spent years being told that this is the be all and end all, this is so important, you know, they absolutely have to concentrate everything on this. This defines their life from now on. And then it, disappears that's a very disconcerting feeling you know and, and they're heading out children who are coming up to leaving school or going or leaving university you know you'll be heading out into a very uncertain working world at the end of this when all this is over do you think there'll be a backlash against social media will we just want to socialize face to face again or will social media have us even more hooked than it did before I don't know about anyone else, but I think I'm going to be want to be out all the time. <laughs> Dancing all night. Take me to the pub. You know, I think, you know, there will be a sort of rush to engage again with with open arms. But I think some of the habits that we've had through this will will stay. You know, we've all had to sort of teach ourselves new ways of staying in touch. And actually, I found weirdly, I've almost been, you know, more sociable through in this period than than normally because I've spent lots of time catching up with old friends and you know that you wouldn't necessarily normally do because everyone's at home you know slightly more time than usual because you can't go out in the evenings and we've had long chats over you know all the various video calling apps so I think it's going to change our socializing habits a bit but I think there will be absolute desperation for sort of just to get out and do things. Honestly, the supermarket trip is the most thrilling day of my week now because, you know, leave the house and actually see people. Great. I've become satisfied with a lot less in terms of a social outing. <laughs> but it will be nice to get back to going to parties. God, imagine yeah, that. Yeah, parties, yes. Um, but will things in terms of business go back to the way they were? Um, businesses discovered that large offices in prestige postcodes are often a waste of money there will be a commercial property crash probably will will going to the office seem a bit quaint and outdated or at least perhaps people will think well i might as well work from home three uh, two or three days a week um or will it all go back to how it was before i don't think we're going to snap back to the way we were before i think all recessions change um patterns of work and this one is going to be probably a recession unlike any other we've lived through, I think. And I think for some people, some people would be desperate to get back to the office. You know, some people will have really missed the aspect of socialising with their colleagues or just, you know, getting out of the house, going on that, you know, suddenly commuting started to look like a lovely treat, you know, compared to, <laughs> compared to being cooped up at home. But I think some people will have had a taste of working from home that they'll want to continue with. Some companies will have found new ways of doing things, as you say. Suddenly the appeal, which I talk about a lot in the book, actually, of, you know, saving office costs by moving people out of head offices, that's going to look very real in a sort of pretty straightened financial times the other side. But I think almost what dwarfs, you know, what part of the reason that we have, you know, that part-time working became acceptable um, in some professions is, is a legacy of the 2008 to nine crash, where, you know, in the city, four-day weeks went from being something that, you know, you were kind of uh, kind of looked down on for asking for to something that companies were desperately encouraging, you know, city lawyers and accountants and all the rest of it were desperate for their staff to go on to four day weeks because they didn't have enough work to, um, to sort of keep them going during this last. And it was a way of keeping the company ticking over was to get everyone to reduce their hours. So working a four day week suddenly became something heroic that you were doing to save the company. So I think in, in that way, our working patterns will change, but I think 
we always underestimate, and we're not wishing to sound gloomy, but I think we often underestimate the negative changes that come out of recessions as well as the benign changes. What came out of the last crash was um, a lot more flexible working, but in a way that was flexible for the employer, not the employee. So it was precarious gig work, you know, zero contracts, gig economy work where, you know, the flexibility was all on the side of the employer and didn't do a lot for the employee. And I think we need to really make sure that we don't kind of make that mistake again that we think consciously as we come out of this about how we want working life to look we don't just sort of go where it takes us yes i mean i think that's a particular risk with a gig economy if we have a situation where we come out of lockdown and then go back a bit into lockdown and then and then out again because you'll find people and employers understandably don't want to stick people on long-term contracts when they don't have any idea of what the future is going to look like Yes, uh, it's a very insecure world we're coming yeah. out into. Probably. And especially if, um, for example, we uh, we are in desperate need of people to pick strawberries and fruit and so on and vegetables, and people come under a lot of pressure, which I think they may do, to take low-paid work doing that, that could be quite a difficult dynamic that I think might come up in the next couple of months. So will people want to go back to the way things were? Or do you think there have been glimmers of, I mean, it, it's hard because the, the people are trying to find the silver lining desperately in what we're experiencing now. And sometimes I get very impatient with that personally and think, oh, for God's sake, you know, please stop it. This is hard for all of us. Stop pretending that it's, it's great for you. But do you think there are particular things that for perhaps a taste for solitude, for example, if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> which people are getting out of this? It's interesting, isn't it? I think some people um, will learn to enjoy their own company during this and realise that, you know, that maybe they've been sort of running away from that and, and that they do crave solitude a bit more than they think. Personally, I'm just going to crave seeing people much more. I'm going to want much more of a social life. But I think um, there will be people this suits better than others, people who have inner resources to draw on, people who've um, never liked uh, feeling forced out of the house. I think there will also be people who've, I'm going to have a couple of workaholic male friends who I know have really actually appreciated being at home with their kids more than they expected to. And I think there are some people who will find it a wrench emotionally to go back to um, old ways of working. I think you're right in that there is a sort of difficulty with looking for silver linings in this and that it, it feels almost tasteless to sort of look for upsides to something where a lot of people are going to lose their loved ones. But I think it's it's possible that it's in some ways brought families back together as well. Lots of us are talking to our elderly parents more, checking up on them more. I know of a few people who've who've ended family rifts or arguments that suddenly seem a bit petty with, with everything else that's going on. You know, it doesn't seem people that you fell out with a long time ago and you can't really remember why you fell out. I mean, does it really matter now with everything that's going on? So I think in some ways it does draw us closer together. And I'd hesitate to call that a silver lining because I don't know that you you have a silver lining to something in which so many people have died. But, you know, that's at least something to cling on to. It's human nature to look for something to feel positive about amid all the gloom and doom. Yes, absolutely. And on that note, <laughs> that's the end of the podcast. Thanks very much, Gabby Hinsliff, for joining us. What are you up to next? Thank you.
What's my stress? I'm going to try and get some work done while being constantly interrupted by my son who wants me to go and play swimball. <laughs> Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with the feature length weekly episode every Wednesday. So don't forget to subscribe and give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts if you can. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor, produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>